At the end of those thousand years, Satan is going to rally people from Gog and Magog and they're going to attack the holy city. And my words during the sermon a couple of weeks ago was, they've got peace, they've got that covenant peace, they're living under that Jesus Christ's uh, rule. They still rebelled against God. And they, they came and it was like sand on the seashore. Like sand on the seashore. And then God himself struck them all down. He burned them with fire. He used fire. Fire came down from heaven and fell upon them and destroyed them all. So my question was, you know, how is that possible after a thousand years of peace with a beautiful ruler like Jesus Christ? And that's where I'm handing it over to you, Andy. How is that possible? How is it possible? There's a microphone if you, I think, speak with a loud voice. Yeah, I've got you a loud voice. Yeah, as Rob said, we had a, a little bit of a, a discussion here a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it came up that uh, in the millennial period, the Bible says that there will be peace and that all our weapons of war will be formed into plowshares. And that the word goes on to say that uh, any, we live a long life. We have longevity on the planet. Uh, but... The Bible also says that it refers to somebody that might die at, say, 100, and it's considered young. And as we go into this millennial period, there is peace. But what I find amazing is that while Christ has come back and he is ruling with a rod of iron, so people can see him, the word goes on to say that there's still rebellion in man's heart because he says in his word that those nations that refuse to come up and, and give, um, what's the word? Homage. 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 Yes, thanks, thanks, Rob. Give homage to Christ in this millennial period, then he says he'll stop the rain. So that suggests that there's still rebellion. People are rebelling today even though they can't see Christ. But in the millennial period, they will still rebel even though they can see Christ. It just goes to show you that the heart of man is really quite evil. And so, as Rob has said, um, yes, there'll be that period in, in that millennial period which is ruling and reigning uh, for a thousand years and, and people's hearts will be continuously rebelling. They'll be under sufferance. Some people will be under sufferance. They will reject Christ and they don't want to have everything to do with him even though he's ruling and reigning and it, it goes on to say that uh, eventually uh, at the end of that thousand year period uh, Satan is released then all of a sudden that you're reading in the word how can he when he's released quickly turn the hearts of men against God it's because there's rebellion there already and it's not hard he's released from the pit and then all of a sudden, it's just like he says to mankind, this ruler that you have, is he not a dictator? Let's come against him. And so it's easy for Satan, once he's released, to just turn the heart of man against God again. Who's believing for a move of God? Who believes that God does move? Yes, yes. Yeah. Who's been in the churches where God's moved? Yes. Yeah. And uh, can you remember if, if in those churches 
what kind of things took place before God began the move. Can you? Lots of prayer. Lots of prayer. Repentance. Repentance. A church that repents. Yes. Mm. You know, I, I was just watching the video of, of what I preached last week, and um, and one thing that really struck out to me was when I, the Lord moved me to say that Christians know better and still sin. The world doesn't know any better and they sin. So who's the worst sinner? And we're calling the world to repentance, yet we ourselves are standing in hypocrisy. I'm not saying anyone, I'm not pointing a finger at anyone in particular, but if we still sin and we're trying to, you know, be this light to the world, our light's going to be dim. And God's going to find it hard to move among a people like that. You know, because it would be against his nature to, to move among the people. He'll be gracious towards us, but his grace will help us to clean up our acts. His grace will help us to pray. You know, you, I know when there's a problem in a church is when people don't pray as they should. You know, where prayer is the least attended meeting in the week. And that's why I cancelled the meeting a few months ago is because Bean and I rocked up one night, we were the only ones there. And I, I cancelled it a few times, and I'm thinking, what's going on? Even I'm cancelling the meeting. I've had valid excuses, but I was... Do you know what I'm saying? But I, I believe God wants a, a church that's going to seek Him with all their heart. Like the Scriptures say that. Don't they? The Scriptures say it. The Scriptures say that the, seek me with all your heart, and you'll find me. And the funny thing is, it's, it, all, all it takes is a committed heart to pray and seek Him. But Christians find that so hard. And therefore, the church is unrevived. Therefore, Adelaide churches, they look like they're going to have a revival, then they don't. Then they look like it again, and then they don't. I've been in churches that it was like that all the time. This church looked like it's going to have a revival, and then doesn't. And that's why I'm praying against the spirit of Antichrist that is moving in our city because he's good at squashing revival. He's really good at squashing revival. There was a... Uh, a guy that came many, many years ago, and I, I'm, I don't vouch for his ministry when I mention his name because I'm, I'm, I know that there's been some shady stuff that people are bringing up on the net about this guy, but his name was Tommy Tenney. Who, who knows of Tommy Tenney? He wrote a book called God Chases. And there's a few things in that book that I, I'm you know, a bit wary of. You know, when he called the Bible a dusty old book and love notes to the church, love letters to the church and things like that. I don't agree with that. This is the book of life. Amen? Mm. You know, not dusty old, you know, love letters to the church. Um, actually, if, if some of those letters to the church are love letters, man, you know, they're pretty harsh. Um, but Tommy Tenney came and he preached in what is now a uh, Edge Church. And he... Hindley Beach Road? Uh, yes. Is it Hindley Beach Road? Yeah, West. Hmm? Edge West? Yeah. Is that Grange? Oh, it's Grange. Grange Road. Yeah, Edge West. And he preached there before it was Edge. And I went to that meeting, and I'll tell you, because he had experienced a, a, a revival in Houston in, when he was there, and then he came to Adelaide, he brought this incredible anointing, and I was in this church, and the power of God was evident in that place. Like, no kidding. The worship was just unbelievable. I couldn't, I couldn't drop my arms. It was like my arms were like like this. You know, I could not get them down. It was a powerful sense of the Spirit of God, and 
for two days that he was there, this it looked like if that had continued, if it stayed and planted himself like the Apostle Paul would go into cities and stay there a whole year. You know, you read that in the book of Acts. He stayed there a long time. If, if revival's striking, you don't leave. But ministers today, they come in with this revival anointing and they come in and they preach, they get the church stood up and they go. A few days later. And the, 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 the revival disappears or dissipates because, you know, the, the power of God was coming through his ministry if I was Tommy Tandy and I had seen that spectacle before my eyes, I would have stayed. You know what I'm talking about? I would have stayed until, you know, that increased and that, that it spread out into the streets and started to touch other, other churches. Now, the reason I'm saying this is, did you know that true Christianity is revived Christianity? Any Christianity that's not in revival is not true Christianity. What happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 got saved, but what happened? The church was born with a massive revival. It was an explosion of life in those people, and the, and the church was revived. The church was alive in the presence of God, and people just got saved in the droves, and it was just the most incredible move of the Spirit. And it continued and continued and continued until, like they were saying, you know, um, they turned the whole city of Jerusalem upside down, and everyone's getting saved. It was a major move of God. And that's true Christianity, isn't it? So what we got is we, we, we come into a church and we and church is normal. And it's not revived Christianity and we sort of get saved because we get saved in that. And then they go through this uh, process of, of getting used to that so that if anything happens outside of the normal... It just about shocks the life out of you and, and people sort of like, like, put on the brakes. This is getting a bit too crazy. And so what we've got in the church is, is a church that's used to normality. Who knows what I'm talking about? It's They're used to uh, church as normal and they're not expecting or even desiring a true move of God. They're not expecting a revival. And therefore... Contentment plays a big role in that. You know, you, you get content and therefore, you know, apathy sets in. And as long as we, you know, keep reading the word and keep doing the, th you know, thing and everything seems to move a little bit forward, like the band gets a bit bigger and whatever and, you know, everything starts to... It, it sounds like, it feels like it's all going according to plan. But I'm, I'm sort of, I'm at a point in my, in my walk with God that God has been bugging me for so long about stirring up the church and getting a revived church that um, I have to be obedient. You know what I mean? If I'm not obedient to this calling, I feel that you know that's going to be part of my judgment. Who's read my book, God's Heart Cry for Revival? A few of you? I've got this book that I wrote there, and that was the original vision that God gave me. Um, and... I was stirred up. Like we even saw, uh, during the writing of that book, we saw a, a, like a revival type take place in our church. Um, but I won't go into the details of it, but it was soon squashed. Because my, my dream of church, my vision or, or belief that church is meant to be, we're meant to be a place where people come in and get saved every single week. 
that the, that there's not enough room in this building. We have to find another building because there's that many people coming in. That's revival. Now, you can do that in... Uh, you can get a lot of people along to an event in different ways. Like, you know, Billy Graham, or not Billy Graham, Franklin Graham will come to town and he can get, you know, 10,000 people. Is that a revival? Well, it's not necessarily a revival at all. It's just a well-promoted event and he's a big name and so people go to see him. But when you've got someone like Evan Roberts in Wales, who was an unknown, he, he basically was, he, had, he, he wasn't a good speaker, he wasn't charismatic, he didn't have anything going for him at all, <coughs> except when the Spirit of God came upon him, God transformed him, and people who came fell down, broke down onto their faces. They said strong men wept in his meetings. Strong miners, men that were, that were tough as nails, would come in and break down and become like water on the floor when Evan Roberts spoke. But it wasn't because of his incredible ability. You know, I can be the best preacher in the world and there's only this many people in the church, you know, because it's, if it's about me, we've missed it, haven't we? But it's about getting God in the house. So what's our job as Christians? You know, you become a Christian and then you want to know what am I supposed to do? Oh, you're supposed to pray. Yeah, 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 but what I'm really supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. Yeah, but what am I really supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. But hasn't God got something for me? Yes, prayer. You know, every great man of God that I've ever read about, every biography of every great man of God that I've ever read about, prayer was their first and foremost ministry. Everything else that took place happened as a result of prayer. They didn't go into ministry and then start praying. They were prayer warriors first and foremost. Prayer just issued out of them, flowed out of them. Like you read about John Wesley, you read about George Whitfield, and, and you read about Charles Finney, and etc., etc., etc. You'll find that these men prayed. Charles Finney would pray for four hours at times before you'd even get out of the house. Four hours in the morning. Then he would leave. And he'd go off, and little wonder, as he walked down the street, people would drop under conviction as he walked past. So, what is Christianity? What's it all about? Is it just that we confess faith and we just get on with life? Or are we supposed to be a praying people, a soul winning people, a people dedicated to God's purposes? Amen. Isn't that what we're supposed to be? Dedicated to the purposes of God. Dedicated to doing His will. Dedicated to the, the, the life of the church and seeing this church become all it's meant to be. Because if God's placed you here, that's what we're meant to do. Aren't we? We're supposed to pray and, 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 and then, you know, I want people coming up and bugging me and saying, hey, we, want, we need more prayer meetings. One prayer meeting's not enough. You know? But we're, this is what it's all about. Am I, am, am I hitting the nail on the head? Yeah. You think? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I, I want to talk a bit about this sermon because I'm going to, I won't uh, continue in that line. I want to get on to my sermon today. But um, I think it's going to just run in line with what we're talking about here. Let's turn in, in your Bibles to Revelation 1.14. Revelation 1.14, everyone there? It says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, white, it stands for purity in Scripture, doesn't it? Yeah. 
where something's white, clean, clean, pure. And white hair is symbolic of uh, his eternal nature. So he's got this white hair and um, he also has white garments and he's pure but he's ancient. He's, they call him in the book of Daniel the ancient of days. He's, he's eternal. Let's go to Isaiah 1.18. And it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. White like wool. So our sins come between God. They, they stand out, don't they? They're stains. And we've got to continually go back to the cross and we've got to continually ask God to wash those sins away by the blood. Because only the holy, only those wearing white, only the pure enter into the kingdom of heaven, which is why you have to repent to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because you won't let a dirty, rotten sinner into heaven. You've got to be clean. And repentance is an act of humbleness. Repentance is an act of, of saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm a wretched sinner. Isn't it? And that's why if there's sin in the church, if the church is steeped in sin, we won't have a revival. We can't have it. And I'm sure some of you might even be saying, well, that's fine. <laughs> I'm happy with, with life as you Normal church is good. I like church. But it's my Sunday thing. And I'll leave it like that because it sort of suits me. But how many times have I said, you know, the day that we die, the day that we're about to enter into heaven, what's going to be the most important thing that's going to matter to you at that moment? The other six days of the week and the things you did or the one day of the week that you devoted to God? It's that day, it's that time in God that is the most critical thing in your life. It's the most important thing. As I said, I've got the most responsible job in the world. I'm helping Christians to grow. And in the process, helping me to grow. You know? I've got to lead by example. And sometimes I fail at that. Do, do we all fail? Amen. You know? I, I don't think I've ever met a Christian that's never sinned as a Christian. Yeah, I'd love to meet one one day. So you've been a Christian for 20 years and you've never sinned. Now, have you been under the power of God and been convicted of that? Yeah, you just about have to say, you just sinned by saying that. But, and I, I think God allows these things in our life, these sins that keep creeping in, not so that we can indulge in them, not that we can go get carried away in it. It's to refine us and purify us and keep us humble before Him. However, there's a, there's a two sides to that. One is we can use that to indulge in it further, that mindset. Or the other is, when God reveals you've just sinned, so you know right now, you just go, I just did something and I know it's a sin. I'll just do it a little bit more. And you don't want to do that. You, you, God, as soon as God reveals, I've just sinned, like, you know, in, in your heart, I've just sinned. He's asking you right at that moment, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and say, give it up now. Stop it. Cut it off right now. Break it. And then come to me, repent, and I'll forgive you. That's what he's doing with the Christians. And, and this is the worrying thing. This is why revival is not sweeping through the West, uh, sweeping through the world as it should be, is because there's a, a prevailing teaching out there of, called hyper grace, which is that you're safe in your sin. 
And if you repent, you're actually insulting the spirit of grace. That's the teaching. I've actually heard it come out of the mouth of um, Joseph Prince and others. But is that true? No. We're supposed to be a holy people. We're supposed to be white. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That's what they shall be. It's not saying they are... Like when you get when you get saved, you'll get washed and clean and purified. And at that moment, you are clean. Your shirt is clean. You have a clean garment. You have the garment of salvation on. It's pure and holy. Is that not right? That's right, isn't it? You're at that moment of salvation. But don't expect that garment to stay white if you go and roll in the mud. That's the problem. We think we're still clean. And we haven't repented in 10 years. And that garment, a white garment, how long does a white garment stay clean, mums? I mean, you put a white garment on a child and send them off to school, does it come back white? Has it ever come back white? I don't wear white. I'm proud of you, Anthony, for putting on white today. Probably, but it's filthy. <laughs> it's a filthy white. I don't wear white for that reason, because it just... You know, especially when I go out to an Italian restaurant or something, it's like, <laughs> look at me. It's embarrassing. Crimson Tide. There's two Italians in the, in the church and they're both wearing white. You mustn't be eating spaghetti today. We've perfected it. Yeah, you've got to it. got the spoon going. Become an expert. Get a big bib. But um, what we're supposed to be pure, but we, we go out there and we get filthy. It's his daily life. Now, um, so we've got to come back to the Lord. And you know what? Every time you come back, you know, as you get older and you wear white, you, it's not like when you're a child and you put on white and you go to school, you roll around on the grass and you get up and, you know, fall over and, and you, you get home and it's filthy. When you put on white as an adult, you shouldn't be doing those same things, should you? You get, you get home, except if you're like Judah and he's a gardener. Don't, you don't wear white in the garden, do you? But um, you, when you're an adult, you'd expect that by the end of the day, it wouldn't be totally filthy. It would be still pretty clean. You know what I mean? And that's the whole uh, analogy in that is that as you're a Christian and you keep on living the life in Christ, you should, be, you should get closer and closer to that ideal. It's our ideal. It should be exponentially improving so that you get, as you get closer to God, as you live more in God, you can live a better life and a more holy life. And you can do right more and more and more often. Amen? And you sin less and less and less and you, you have, perform acts of righteousness, righteousness more and more and more. Amen? Let's go to Psalm 51.7. Now let's shoot through a few scriptures because I want to try to get a bit of a sermon completed. And it's the same sort of thing. Cleanse me with hyssop. So this is the cleaning methods in the Old Testament. When you go to buy your um, Omo and all that, just get hyssop. Get some hyssop. Should be a product called hyssop. All the Christians are buying For whites, hyssop. Cleanse me of hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let's keep going. Matthew 17, 2. We're to be like Christ. He's pure, holy, righteous. 17.2, and it says, There he was, Jesus Christ, transfigured before 
before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. White light. Totally holy. Totally pure. Without a stain or blemish. Jesus was sinless. It's hard to imagine a man, even God, a man who could walk the whole of life and not stumble in his ways even minutely. Because even the smallest of sin, the smallest of sin that God would judge as sin, and God is an exacting judge. You know, we might think, um, you know, someone says a joke and you hear this dirty joke. And you, we might go, <laughs> like that. And we might think, well, I didn't really get into that joke, so I didn't sin. But that <laughs> fact that we did that, <laughs> an exacting judge could say, you just sinned. You know? Now, is that going to matter if you're a, a new Christian and you're, you know, you've been a drug addict and an alcoholic and you've been you know, doing all this sort of promiscuous stuff, laughing at a little dirty joke with a chuckle? It doesn't matter at that point because he's got a lot of work to do in you. But as you're a more mature Christian, when you're 40 years in the faith, that's the kind of thing. Because that, that puts a little stain on your white shirt. And a few of those in the day, and the shirt needs a good old wash, doesn't it? Go to Revelation 2.18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. His eyes are like what? Flaming fire. Fire as a theophany of existence communicates, first of all, the very presence of God. So that's what fire does. And a theophany is a visible manifestation of God to humankind. So um, there's many visible different ways God appeared in the Old Testament, didn't he? But uh, one of the ways, sorry? Burning bush. Well, the burning bush. Sorry. That's yeah, yeah, that's no. coming up, I think, right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's not. No. Yes. Uh, in Greek, it, it, it reads uh, uh, God's appearance or God's appearance. God's appearing. Okay. A theophany. Because yes. yeah, that's a Greek word, isn't it? Yes. Every word is from the Greek. Daniel 10.6 10.6 and it says his body was was like chrysolite his face like lightning his eyes like flaming torches his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude we heard in the book of um, Revelation that his voice was like rushing waters he's saying the voice like a multitude like if you've ever been in a you hear 10,000 people all speak at once that, that was the voice of God. That's the voice of God. Had eyes of fire. You know, there's a reason why when Daniel and when John saw, the, saw this theophany, that they fell down as if dead, or they went into a deep sleep. They just could not face God. They collapsed to the ground. You know, we're going to have to stand before that holy God. When we're here in church, it can seem quite safe, doesn't it? If you have a nice, light sermon, Christianity can be very light. But if you get a sermon that talks about the existence of God, that it's His reality, that He's a judge, He's a judge that will judge us with fire. And we'll talk about that in a second, because these are scriptures that, that I've been pulling up here. Let's go to Exodus 3, 2-6, to and that's the, I believe it's the burning bush. 3, 2-6. While you're finding it, I'll start reading it. 
It says there, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord uh, saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So what does he have to do? Take off his sandals and walk barefoot within his presence. So I, could have, I should have probably looked up a little bit more about that. But I, I didn't because I've got so much other stuff to talk about. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. There's a reason it says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. All things will bow down. All things will fall on their face, flat on their face, because they, they simply won't be able to look upon God. You're going to be putting your face to the ground because you'd be too scared to look. At him. This is when I'm, what I'm talking about is when we first come into his presence as God the judge. It's going to be the whole of creation will come down and bow before him. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to give power to his holy people to stand on their feet. And we want to be among that crowd, don't we? We want to be among those people that God gives the power to stand on his feet. Like he said to Daniel, stand up. He touched him and gave him the strength to stand. He touched John and gave him the strength to stand. It's only the holy that get into heaven. And we can't be holy in our own right, can we? We can only be holy through the, cleanse, the washed blood of Jesus Christ, that washing us. And we've got to apply it daily. We've got to live in it daily. We've got to wash our house. We've got to cleanse us every day. We've got to be so clean before Him. You know, I always use the analogy of a shower. And the reason is, if, you, know, you know, I know with my daughters, I, I, I've got to smell okay to come near them. <laughs> if I come near them and I stink... They're like, what, Dad, stop right there. Turn around. Go and clean. Go and get a, have a shower or something. Use some deodorant. How much more God? If, he, if, if his people are going to come to him, they've got to be clean. They've got to smell good. We can't be a stench in his nostrils. Amen. But he also has his friends, those that love him, those that pray to him, those that commit to him, those that um, are passionate about him. And all those qualities, all those things that we talk about all the time in this church, you know, how important it is to read the word, how important it is to pray. And how important. He wants those people. He wants the people that know him, the people that have a relationship with him. Amen. Let's go to Exodus 19, 18. Actually, we may as well go to 13, 21 because that's on the way. And this was when God was with them in the desert. It says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. He was ahead of them with fire, and it provided the light. Is Jesus the light? Jesus is the light of Christ. We need that fire in our life to guide us, the fire of God to guide us and direct us. 1918. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. And at that, the Israelites ran from the mountain of God. 
Mount Sinai. They ran, they fled. And they were crying out that they're going to get destroyed by God. And this was God's people. They feared God. I was, I was tossed up between doing this sermon today and a sermon on the fear of God. And I've, I've done sermons on the fear of God in the past. I've done them probably once every year or so. But it needs to be done at the moment because we've got to fear God, don't we? We've got to fear God. And we've got to not just know we should fear God in our minds, we actually got to literally fear God. And it says there's a sum total of fear due to Him. It's due. He doesn't mind you going, Oh Lord, forgive me. You are a powerful, powerful, glorious God. You could strike me dead in a moment. You listen to the way these, um, the, the patriarchs of old, the way they spoke about God. They feared Him. They trembled in His presence. They said, it says in the, in the New Testament, live out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Why is it saying that? It's because we've got to fear God so much that we tremble as we move through our life. When you tremble and you're careful, aren't you? You're careful to do the right thing. That's why it says, live out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what does Jesus say? I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Fear him. Fear him. It'll keep you right. It'll keep you honest. It'll keep you upright in Christ. It'll keep you righteous. It'll keep you praying. It'll keep you on your knees. It'll keep you reading the word. A little bit of fear. It's good for the soul. We're not to fear man, are we? It doesn't say fear man. Only fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. If you fear him, you don't have to fear anything else. I remember Justin Martyr, they were about to kill him. He says, you can kill this body, but you can never really do me any harm. Because he feared God alone. He knew where he was going. You can kill this. You can kill this flesh, but you can't do me any harm. Because we're in Christ. Amen. Amen. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Let's turn there. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. So again, we see white mentioned, isn't it? It's white, purity. With justice, he judges and makes war. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. Who's that? Jesus Christ. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. That's interesting. Don't ask me what it is, because no one but him knows. I'm sure there's a website out there. What is the name? I've got the name. But now he got it, because only he knows it. And when he says only him, if it's Jesus with the name, the Father would know it, because they're one. Only him. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Who's the Word of God? Jesus. Yeah, Yeshua. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses. So, what's that saying? The armies of heaven are holy and pure and righteous, those in heaven with Jesus. 
were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Again, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. A sharp sword. He's a God that's going to judge the nations with this sword. He's a dividing, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of, heart, of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before who? The eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We must give an account to this God, to this God that has a sword coming out of his mouth. And when I get to that point where I have to give an account, when God says to me, Rob, what have you done with your Christian life? I can say, Lord, I've lived for you. I've lived for you. I've followed you. I've prayed to you. I've devoted my life to you. I've done everything I can to live as closely to you as I possibly can. We all want to say that, don't we? We want to make sure we can say that. And I'm not judging anyone here. That's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. But God will hold every one of us to an account. And that's not a guilt trip from me. That's a guilt trip from the Scriptures. The Scriptures say it. The scriptures make many references to judgment. And that was the other sermon I actually started writing, but I didn't finish. The judgment. So you've got some big ones coming up. The fear of God, you've got the judgments of God coming up. Um, and the revelation, we're at a point where we're talking about fire, and which is the judgments of God. But every one of us, young and old, rich and poor, free and slave, those with great power and those with very little power in their life, all will be judged. And we're going, to be, we're going to be held to an exacting God. And there's no way without Christ that you're going to get through that judgment. Amen. This would be good if we had a few unbelievers in here today. They could hear this. Yeah. But it's we, we have to make sure that we're, every day we've got our eyes set on the judgment. Every day you should live in light of the coming judgment. Because you never know when you're going to leave this life. You never know. You know, we could, it could happen tomorrow. You know, I'm not saying it will. And Lord, let it not be. But if it did, are you ready to meet with your God? So just make sure you pray and get that daily Feeling like you're in, in God that in God at such a level that you could meet him that moment. You know, be like Enoch. He walked with God and then he was no more for God took him away. He walked with God. He walked with him. Walk with God on a daily basis and stay close. And then he'll make sure that no matter when you get removed from this planet, you're ready to face him. Amen. And I'll just finish this last bit. So out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And this is interesting. Because uh, Andy and I were talking after the last time I preached on Revelation a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about Jesus ruling with an iron scepter during the millennium. And Andy, could I ask you to come up and just elaborate a little bit on that for us? 
Yes. Yes. Great. Thank you. All right. I'll just I'll get him ready for it by talking about the millennium. The millennium talks about a thousand years, which is a thousand years apiece. At the end of those thousand years, um, Satan is going to rally people from Gog and Magog, and they're going to attack the holy city. And my words during the sermon a couple of weeks ago was, they've got peace. They've got that covenant peace. They're living under that um, uh, Jesus Christ's uh, rule. Yet, like they they still rebelled against God, and they they came and it was like sand on the seashore, like sand on the seashore. And then God Himself struck them all down. He burned them with fire. He used fire. Fire came down from heaven and fell upon them and destroyed them all. So my question was, you know, how is that possible after a thousand years of peace with a beautiful ruler like Jesus Christ? And that's where I'm handing it over to you, Andy. How's that possible? How is it possible? There's a microphone if you. I think speak with the loud voice. Yeah, I've got a loud voice. Yeah, yeah. As Rob said, we had a, a little bit of a, a discussion here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it came up that uh, in the millennial period, the Bible says that there will be peace, and that all our weapons of war will be formed into plowshares, and that the word goes on to say that. Uh, and we live a long life. We have longevity on the planet. Uh, but the Bible also says that it refers to somebody that might die at, say, 100, and it's considered young. And as we go into this millennial period, there is peace. But what I find amazing is that while Christ has come back and he is ruling with a rod of iron, so people can see him, the word goes on to say that there's still rebellion in man's heart because he says in his word that those nations that refuse to come up and, and give, um, what's the word? Homage. Homage, homage. yes, thanks, thanks Rob. Give homage to Christ in this millennial period, then he says he'll stop the rain. So that suggests that there's still rebellion. People are rebelling today even though they can't see Christ. But in the millennial period, they will still rebel even though they can see Christ. It just goes to show you that the heart of man is really quite evil. And so, as Rob has said, um, yes, there will be that period in, in that millennial period which is ruling and reigning uh, for a thousand years. And, and people's hearts will be continuously rebelling. They'll be under sufferance. Some people will be under sufferance. They will reject Christ and they don't want to have everything to do with him, even though he's ruling and reigning. And it, it goes on to say that uh, eventually, uh, at the end of that thousand-year period, uh, Satan is released. Then all of a sudden, you're reading in the Word, how can he, when he's released quickly turn the hearts of men against God. It's because there's rebellion there already, and it's not hard. He's released from the pit, and then all of a sudden, he, it's just like he says to mankind, this ruler that you have, is he not a dictator? Let's come against him. Mm. And so it's easy for Satan, once he's released, to just turn the heart of man against God again. And then that's the final battle. Yeah. When they, he's thrown the beast... False prophet thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, yeah. That's I just find it interesting that I even in times in that millennial period, 
that, uh, yeah, the heart of man is still rebelling against Christ. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah true. Okay. Thanks, thanks well, Andy. Thank it's, um, and I, I think you mentioned it, that here we, it says in the Word that the rain will, if they don't come up, pay homage, as Andy was saying, that he'll stop the rain in, in those areas. So what they're going to, you know, Satan's going to use that at that time. So um, if people think that when Christ comes, that's the end of sin, it's not. No. <laughs> that's just peace beginning. And then, and sin will still be there, yeah, for a thousand years. However, it says those that um, die in Christ in this life cannot suffer the second death. Will not suffer the second death. So the Christians among us that live for Christ now and die in Christ now, we can't get uh, deceived by Satan. God will make sure of it. And also, we will have our imperishable bodies. We'll be receiving our imperishable bodies, which and, and the mark on our foreheads, yes, um, uh, that only that Christ will give us. So that'll keep us in that time. So we're, Christians don't have to worry about that because we. This is the tough time for us. This is the time that Christians have got to get it right, and we've got to go through the ringer with pa- with pastors giving them sermons like this, <laughs> doing the washing. You know, it's like washing day today, isn't it? And I hang you out to dry soon. <laughs> All right, so who's received that today? Yes. Well, that's terrific. We won't go any further because I've, I've got more on the blazing fire thing and I'll save that for next time. And let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we just uh, ask that your spirit now just uh, work in each and every one of our hearts. Help uh, what has been spoken to be a real stirring in each of us today so that um, we could just... Uh, Step up to a new level in, in you, that our lives will uh, be changed and transformed. Let us not go home and just forget about this sermon, Lord. As much as it might have uh, maybe stirred some of us deeply and, and uh, you know, there's even the potential that some of us might not even want to hear it. We want to just get on to study and other things. Lord, let it be that uh, those of us that maybe feel that way, that it will do the best work in them. And what was said will just penetrate deep into the hearts of us. As Andy was saying, rebellion is in the heart of man. And, uh, and I've noticed as a pastor, Lord, that um, rebellion is always there in forms. And, um, and even in me as well, Lord. And I'm just uh, praying, Lord, that you can help us at this time to uh, get above it and beyond it. So that we can um, start to function the way we're meant to be as a church. That this church will become... Uh, purified, made holy, made right before you, and that, Lord, that you'd be ble- um, see it, to bless us with uh, a revival, that you would pour out your Spirit upon this church and do an incredible thing um, in us and in the life of all of those that um, uh, come to this church. We pray for all of those that aren't here today, that your Spirit will be moving in their life and helping them. Um, and I pray that somehow your Spirit will speak to them about very similar matters uh, as what we spoke about today. Uh, So, Lord, just be with us now, and uh, may you bless all that we do. Bless the mothers. Uh, May we have a wonderful Mother's Day lunch or dinner uh, today, and and, I pray that everyone here will look after their mums as well and really bless them immensely. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.